Would a loving and gracious Jesus pronounce a series of woes upon the scribes and Pharisees? Well, that was exactly what he did. Whoa! But he had no choice but to warn them because things had already gone from bad to worse. And guess what? Jesus did what he did because he was loving and gracious. Hi, this is Hanson from Archippus Awakening, a ministry dedicated to the awakening of the saints that we may know and fulfill our God-given kingdom assignments. And this is what Kingdom 101 is all about. We revisit kingdom fundamentals to know Jesus our King, to embrace His kingdom that we may receive and move on kingdom assignments according to His kingdom ways. Join me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, once again, we want to proclaim and declare Jesus. And more than just a teaching, Holy Spirit, come and teach us what Jesus wants and what His kingdom is all about. In His mighty name we pray. Amen. Mention the scribes and Pharisees and immediately a negative picture springs to mind. Understandably, no one wants to be addressed by either of these terms today. Well, given the various altercations between Jesus and these leaders in the Gospels, we perceive these as bad. Seeing how Jesus called them out so strongly in Matthew 23 only affirms this view and impression of the scribes and Pharisees. However, to be fair, not all scribes and Pharisees were wrong or bad. Most, if not all, started out with very good intentions to love, obey, and serve God. That said, good intentions don't always end up at the right destination. There are enough distractions and deceptions along the way to cause one to veer off track. Good can easily become bad, and if not acknowledged and addressed, it can quickly go from bad to worse. And this is what today's passage is about. Well, to be clear, the scribes and Pharisees were leaders of Jesus' day. These titles, scribes, teachers of the law, Pharisees, they refer generally to those in leadership across all generations. The equivalent today would be pastor, elder, deacon, teacher, apostle, prophet, etc. A broader and more encompassing term would be shepherd, one who looks after and directs those under his or her charge. Well, sadly, across the history of Israel, God's kingdom people, we see a recurring theme of irresponsible shepherds and leaders. Entering the land, God's instruction to Joshua was very clear. Do not veer from his word and from his ways. Well, it didn't take too long for Israel to veer from God's word and his ways. Over the years, the kings and the priests went from bad to worse until the Lord took them out of the land. Well, 70 years later, returning to the land, they determined not to commit the same mistake. In doing their best to keep the law, they then missed the spirit of the law, and they veered again, and went from bad to worse. All through, God sent prophets to warn them, over and over again. However, instead of heeding, repenting, and returning, they went from bad to worse, and worse, and worse. In the fifth discourse, 
Matthew chapter 23, 24, and 25, Jesus' role is clearly that of a prophet, the prophet of all prophets. And like the prophets who came before him, he issues warnings. By that time, it had already escalated from bad to worse. In the previous teaching on Matthew 23, verses 1 to 12, we explored what leaders are not to do. If not, it will lead to disastrous outcomes and consequences for both the leader and for those who follow their lead. Jesus goes on in Matthew now 23, verses 13 to 36, to list the issues, pronouncing seven woes. Now here's a side note. Verse 14 is not found in the earliest manuscripts. And it is widely agreed that this verse is not part of Matthew's original text, but added by later copyists to harmonize with Mark 12.40 and Luke 20.47. As such, not eight, but seven woes. While Jesus, in true prophetic style, through these woes, this is a wake-up call that bad had become worse. And it is a warning to stop it before worse become woes. But before we go any further, what exactly is a woe? A woe is a cry, an exclamation. This word technically is an onomatopoeia, big word I know, but it just means the formation of a word from a sound associated with what is named. For example, cuckoo sounds like cuckoo or sizzle, sounds like a sizzling in a frying pan. Well, whether in Greek, why, or Hebrew, oi, hoi, it sounds like a cry, an exclamation. A woe can also be translated, alas, as an exclamation of exasperation, bewilderment. It can be of anguish or of anger, of pain, of grief, or an indignation. Now, every language will have its own version like, whoa, ayoho, it's a cry, an exclamation. A woe can also be a calamity, an event. This word can denote an event of disaster or of destruction. For example, we see in Revelations chapter 9, verse 12, as well as 11, verse 14, that speaks of a war that is past and two more are coming, or a second war is gone and then a third is now coming quickly. Prophetically, it can point to a consequence, a judgment or an eventuality if warnings are not heeded. Now, not all woes are judgment, depending on the context, like I said, it can be an expression of just a regret and of compassion. A woe can also describe a condition. It is an evaluation, suggesting that it is not in a good state or in a good place. Now, a synonym would be anathema, to be accursed or to be under a curse. Now, the opposite would be hosanna, which means to save. And so, contrary to popular belief, the pronouncing of woes is not to curse someone, but it is actually to highlight the need for salvation. So a woe can be summarized as follows. It is a cry, crying out that the condition is bad, real bad, and it's getting from bad to worse. And if nothing is done, it will end up in a calamity, in destruction. 
This is exactly the tone and the objective of Jesus in Matthew 23. Jesus was exposing a condition, a true condition of the leaders of his day. Instead of honorific titles that they were craving for, rabbi, teacher, father, Jesus used rather horrific terms. Hypocrites, fools, blind, serpents, murderers. Jesus was warning of a calamity, of a destruction that awaits them. And this is bad. No entry into the kingdom. Condemnation of hell. And for this reason, Jesus was crying out. He was not cursing the leaders. He was offering salvation. It was a cry of both anguish of pain as well as anger and frustration. It was a cry of love as well as of compassion because he didn't want to see anyone reach that eventuality. Now that we know what a woe is all about, it's quite serious, isn't it? But we have to ask the question, what warranted such warnings and such woes from Jesus? What was it that the leaders did or did not do that warranted such a serious cry from the Lord? What exactly was the issue or the big problem? We'll look at the big picture first and then zoom in for a closer look. This list of woes in the fifth and last discourse reminds us of another list that we have considered earlier in the first discourse. Yes, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12. And looking at the two, I notice at least seven similarities and contrasts. Well, both describe a state or a condition. One of blessedness, makarios, kingdom blessedness, and the other, woes of cursedness, or to be accursed. Both are about the kingdom of God. No surprises here. But one is about receiving and entering in, and the other about missing out because they will not enter in. Both are about righteousness. One will be true righteousness and the other false. Both reveal the orientation as well as focus. One is selfless where the orientation and focus is on others, but the other will be selfish and the focus is on one's own gain. Both end with persecution, where one is describing those persecuted for living the things of the kingdom, whilst the other is the persecution of those who live the kingdom. And both are outcomes of how the law or the scripture is handled and lived out, whether God's word is interpreted rightly or wrongly. And finally, both are directed at disciples and multitudes, meaning there's a right way and there's a wrong way. Do you want to follow the wrong examples of the leaders or would you want to follow Jesus? The choice is yours. And what an interesting overview comparing these two lists. But let's jump in right now to get into the details as we study the structure of our passage for today. Looking at our passage more closely, we note the use of a literary device called chiasm. And this is drawn from the Greek letter chi, which looks like an X. And this is a common device used by writers to make a very clear point. 
We call this a chiastic structure, and this refers to a repetition of similar ideas in reverse pattern. And this means that the writer would make a few points in one direction and then reverse that to make that same point whether you read it forward or you read it backwards. For example, the idea is A1, B1, C1, and then ends in the point D. And in reverse, D, C, B, or A. Now, whether you read it forward or you read it backward, it presents the same thought. And, but when you look at it in pairs, then A1 and A2 will carry the same idea, B1, B2, C1, C2, and then it converges with D as the main point. Looking at the seven woes, it fits this pattern. Woe number one and seven carry the same idea. Woes number two and six also, and then three and five, the same idea. And these three pairs would then frame the main issue or the main point, woe number four. Now this is how it looks like. Number one and number seven talks about the rejection of Messiah and his kingdom, as well as the messengers of the kingdom being rejected. Woes number two and six speak of religious zeal, but not with great outcomes, harmful ones, in fact. Woes number three and five speak of the tradition that they were used to, as well as the outward forms. And finally, the main point, they missed the heart of the law. Whether you read from one, two, three, or in reverse, 765, it always ends with number four as the focus and the main point and the key issue. Let's get even closer to understand what this means. We will begin with wall number four, the main point sandwiched right in the center of this old passage. Because if we miss this, we miss everything. So it's important for us to understand the key issue here. Matthew 23, verses 23 to 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith or faithfulness. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a net and swallow a camel. Jesus was not saying that tithing was wrong or to stop tithing. He was highlighting the wrong focus on such minute details that they missed the weightier matters of the law, the more important issues, the very heart of the law. The leaders were more concerned about getting people to tithe than they were about what the law was to be, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Now, it sounds very familiar. All the prophets were talking about it. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? Just to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Zechariah 7, 9. The Lord wants you to execute true justice, show mercy and compassion everyone to his brother. Hosea 6, 6. Jesus quotes this a few times. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. It's not one or the other, it's both and, but don't miss the main thing. The leaders totally missed God's heart. They missed the heart of the law. And if they were looking at the little details, 
to strain out a gnat and to then swallow a camel. Jesus was referring to these two animals which were both unclean, a little insect that's unclean, a camel also. They tried so hard not to violate a small detail, but they were totally oblivious to violating the entire essence of the law. And this is the main point. Once the heart of God and the spirit of the law is missed, it affects everything else. It goes from bad to worse. From the main point in war number four, we now go outwards and look at wars number three and number five, which speak of tradition and outward forms. Matthew 23, verses 16 to 22. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. And whoever swears by the goal of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater? The goal or the temple that sanctifies the goal. And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater? The gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Jesus already addressed this in Matthew chapter 5, 33 to 37. As kingdom people, everything we say before God is binding. Our yes is yes. Our no is no. See, the leaders mishandled scripture, creating their own traditions and practices, defining which oaths were binding and which were not. And this became a system where they could make oaths and still get away with it. Outwardly, it looked good and spiritual. They knew the right things to say. But inwardly, really at the heart of the matter, it encouraged lying. Look at Matthew 23, verses 25 to 26. In war number 5, parallels war number 3. War to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean too. Once again, Jesus already addressed a very similar issue in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 20, about ceremonial washing of hands before eating. And he referred to this as a tradition of man that was allowed to overtake and supersede the commandment of God. Now, it's not what goes in that defiles, but what proceeds from the heart that defiles a man. Again, it's not the outside, but it's the inside that truly matters. And scripture is mishandled once more to justify a tradition of outward religious observance without any change on the inside. Moving outwards a little bit more now, from number four to three to five, now to two to six, about religious zeal but with terrible and harmful outcomes. War number two, Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. 
Now, these guys, they did their very best to convert others to Judaism through circumcision and full commitment to the Jewish law. However, if you are misinterpreting and misunderstanding the law, what they did was to convert these not to Judaism correctly, but to Pharisaism, to be like themselves. In fact, the converts became even more zealous. And if you are wrong, then they are wrong, and all the leaders are wrong, and the followers are wrong, and these become even worse, twice as much as the sons of hell. Woe number six, Matthew 23, 27 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, what is this practice of whitewashing the tombs? Before Passover, it was customary to clean up or whitewash the tombs so that it became obvious to others for the reason that they may not accidentally touch it, rendering themselves ritually then unclean, thereby disqualifying them from celebrating the Passover. And this is the point. Not that the tombs were beautiful for them to behold and accept, but they were to be avoided and shunned. Now, if these leaders, you're terrible and you're doing things wrong, what they looked like were that they looked pure and righteous outwardly. But they were the total opposite. They were terrible on the inside. And Jesus' point is, they are to be avoided and to be shunned. And so they were outwardly okay. They were very, very zealous. But can you see the harmful outcomes? Because if you're going to associate with them, it's not going to be a great outcome. You're going to be twice as much as them, as sons of hell. Remember, Paul actually says the same thing. Of those with a form of godliness and yet deny its power. He says, from such people, turn away. When you miss the main point, it really gets from bad to worse. When you begin to create a system of your own with wrong understanding and wrong interpretation, it's not going to end up good. We finally come to woes number one and seven, which is about the rejection of Messiah as well as his messengers of the kingdom. Matthew 23, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. See, all scripture is about Jesus. Now, we know this from John chapter 5, 39, 40, as well as Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 46. Everything points to Jesus. In missing the heart of the law, we end up missing the one who gave the law. The leaders refuse to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And so they reject him and his teaching and even his correct interpretation of the law and the way of the kingdom because they already have a mindset of how they want to see the word. And not only for themselves, they discouraged and dissuaded others too. Let's talk about entering the kingdom of God. What is this kingdom life? Essentially, it's the rule and the reign of God, living his ways according to the Torah and looking to the eternal kingdom. Now, if you miss the heart of the king and the heart of the kingdom, 
of course, you will not end up entering the kingdom. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, that not everyone who calls him Lord, Lord, will finally enter if they don't live according to his ways. The leaders missed it for themselves, and they also shut up the kingdom for others. They had the keys of the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven. Luke 11.52, a parallel passage, Jesus says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. By not using the word rightly, they locked themselves out of the kingdom and they prevented others from entering also. Now you compare this with Jesus telling Peter and the disciples that now he has given them the keys of the kingdom. Now we've got to do this correctly, use it wisely, because we can open the way into the kingdom for people, and we can also block people from knowing Jesus and all the things of the kingdom. Look at war number seven. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you built the tombs of the prophets and adorned the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our father, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape? the condemnation of hell. War number seven carries the same idea, the rejection of the messengers of the kingdom, the prophets. Through the building of monuments and they were acknowledging the memorials of these righteous ones, the leaders considered themselves more spiritual and better than their fathers who sinned and rejected the prophets. They claimed, oh, if we were in those days, we would have never done this to the prophets. But Jesus points out their heart and says to them, you're actually doing the same. The prophets are sent to warn you. All the warnings are for your good. But because you have your own idea and your own system and you got it wrong from the heart of the law and you missed it entirely, you refuse to listen to the people and the messengers of the kingdom. You did it to the prophets before and now you're doing the same to me, to Jesus and you will do the same to others that will come after Jesus. Verse 34, Jesus goes on, Therefore indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. All through, the Lord was warning the leaders, from Abel to Zechariah, every prophet, you have done it to them, and you're going to do it to the new ones that I'm going to send to you. You are simply going from bad to worse, to woes. And they were sons of murderers, filling up the measure of their father's guilt. Like serpents and vipers, they had forked tongues, speaking out of both sides of their mouths. What awaited these would be the condemnation of hell. 
So what was it that warranted such a serious warning and this series of woes? Whether viewed through a chiastic structure or contrasted against the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, the issue remains the same. It was a wrong interpretation of Scripture. For this reason, Jesus had to explain to them in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And he goes on to explain all their misinterpretations. You have heard it said to those of old, but I say to you. And when you have a wrong interpretation of Scripture, it will result in missing the entire heart of God and what His Word actually means. And when you do this, you miss the heart of God and you miss the Spirit of the law. It's downhill all the way. It gets from bad to worse. You have religious systems with man-made traditions. It gets from bad to worse. It's reduced to a religion of rituals, rules, regulations that become burdensome and legalistic. It gets from bad to worse. An outward show, finally, of religiosity with questionable agendas and motives. It's bad to worse and worse to woes. Oh, a cry, a condition of a calamity. And even when confronted by the king as well as his messengers, there's just too much at stake, too much to give up. You might just end up with a refusal to acknowledge, to repent, to return. Whoa. What can we learn from this? How about us, the church, the ecclesia, God's kingdom people today? Can we do church and religion and end up missing Jesus and the kingdom too? I believe so. Heeding Jesus' warning through the seven woes, allow me to draw seven key reminders for ourselves, not just for leaders, but for all believers of Jesus Christ. Number one, know the king, embrace his kingdom. Now these are the very objectives of Kingdom 101. We want to point everyone to Jesus and the ways of his kingdom. We want to get to know our King all over again. With imputed righteousness today and the Spirit of the Christ, we are now enabled to live righteous. And for that, we want to use the keys of the kingdom rightly and without compromise. We learn to accept and embrace everything that His kingdom is about. Now to do this well, we are reminded we must interpret the word according to how Jesus interprets it, by the Spirit. Learn to discern the Spirit of the Lord, the heart of God, because this brings life. Learn to manage the tension of truth as well as grace. And we are here to live it correctly first, do the best we can, so that we can show others the way to kingdom life, which is abundant life, which is eternal life. Get to know Jesus and embrace everything about His kingdom. Number two, don't just make converts, make disciples. Evangelism is good and needful. However, declare the good news of the kingdom, not just the gospel of salvation or just repeating a sinner's prayer. Good news is not just going to heaven, but living the kingdom life in the here and now, serving Jesus fully. Too many have been saved just to sit and warm the pews of the church. Now, the assurance of salvation is nice to hear. But learning to not neglect so great a salvation 
and to examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith and to test yourself is equally important and critical. Leaders must boldly and graciously teach this without condemnation. Evangelism and discipleship go hand in hand and are not to be separated. Discipleship begins immediately. All believers are followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. From day one, teach them all to live the kingdom life, to live for Jesus. Don't just make converts and be happy with membership numbers. Don't enroll converts into institutional and organized religion. Make disciples, raise kingdom people on assignment for Jesus. Number three, don't elevate tradition over God's word. We can learn lots from tradition, but we must also understand why and how these traditions first came about. You know, our message must remain the same, but methods can change. And so if something needs to be changed, then change it. If it needs to be removed, remove it. Traditions, denominational distinctives, these all can be celebrated. However, they must not take precedence over the word and the ways of the kingdom. Everything must be subjected and submitted to Scripture. Does it line up with God's Word? Does it represent the heart of God? Keeping tradition does not necessarily mean obedience to God's Word. Beware of going with the flow. It can lead to self-deception. Or maybe you just want a sense of longing, a culture that you are a part of, their safety and security. Maybe everyone's doing it, so it must be right. And so you don't think anymore, you just follow. Careful, it can also lead to spiritual pride. Oh, if I keep tradition, I'm good, I'm better than you. If you're not careful, tradition can also be used to control and to manipulate, to bring guilt and condemnation. God's Word, rightly interpreted, must guide and direct all tradition and practices, and not the other way around. Don't twist the Word of God to suit our tradition, practices, or preferences. Don't elevate tradition over God's Word. Number four, focus on what truly matters to God. Much of what we focus on and what we do in church, they do not seem bad, like our church services, our worship nights, prayer meetings, tithe, Bible study, ministry, missions. However, don't just engage in religious practices for the sake of religious practices. Don't be busy for busy's sake. When Jesus quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's not saying to do away with our church services or any of these practices. He's reminding us to keep the main thing, the main thing. There's no point doing all these if we miss the heart of God in all these things. Justice, mercy, faithfulness, love. God had very strong words for Israel through the prophet Amos. He told them, I hate, I despise your feast days. Let me paraphrase. Can you stop all this? It's making me sick. I'd rather you let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. See, churchy and religious activities are pointless if these are not aligned with God's heart, His ways, and His purposes. Focus on what truly matters to Jesus and His kingdom. Number five, be consistent both on the outside as well as on the inside. Integrity is to be the same person 
whether we are in church or at home or anywhere else, when we are with others or when we are alone. We have to be consistent. It is way too easy to act and sound religious and spiritual. And you know what? People can spot and smell this a mile away. Hypocrites. We must be the same inside as we are on the outside. What we do outwardly for Jesus should really be a result of what has been transformed inwardly by Jesus. Because out of the abundance of our hearts, this is how we will speak and how we will live. If not, we are inconsistent like the scribes and Pharisees. And inconsistent Christians are double-minded, double-tongued. They talk out of both sides of their mouths. And no wonder Jesus and John the Baptist called the leaders serpents and a brood of vipers. Ouch. So if I am to preach it, I must ensure that I'm ready to live it. Not that I do it perfectly already, but I'm always ready to check alignment, admit misalignments, and to realign with God's enablement and with the help of others that I journey with. Be consistent on the outside and on the inside. Number six, be good examples of the kingdom. The last thing we want to be are to be Christians that others shun or avoid. Sadly, there are plenty of those around. These would sound very spiritual, but are simply flaky or hypocritical. They do not mean what they say. We are ambassadors of the King. And so we must represent and reveal Jesus well, and especially leaders. We have a responsibility to be good examples of the kingdom, to show others what it means to live rightly according to the ways of the kingdom, to love as Jesus loves, to serve as Jesus serves. Our words must be good. Our yes is yes. Our no is no. If we declare that God has said and instructed, then we must be faithful and obedient to carry it through. And if we are wrong, if we have hurt wrongly, then be humble and ready to admit, to be accountable as we serve alongside one another. Let us be good examples of the kingdom, of what it means to be awakened, aligned, and assigned for Jesus. Number seven, heed the right prophetic voices. We seem to think that prophets today are only here to give nice words of encouragement and blessings. This is not entirely accurate. New Testament prophets should not be any different from Old Testament counterparts. They are to declare, warn, guide, direct, and point everyone back to Jesus and His kingdom. Jesus, the prophet, was like the prophets who were sent before Him. They pronounced woes, crying out, revealing the condition, warning of calamity and destruction if their words were not taken seriously. Jesus sure did not mince his words with the leaders at all, but they refused to respond in the correct manner. Jesus was not mean. He was not nasty. He was loving and gracious, desiring that none should perish. Leaders must discern and heed God's prophetic messengers in our generation so that we can keep from veering, from going from bad to worse. Alignment check. We must be teachable, not prideful, thinking that we are not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Leaders must also be willing to be that prophetic voice to warn others, 
that they do not go from bad to worse. And we do this because we fear God, not because we fear man. And we are afraid of our popularity being affected. If we truly love those that we lead, then we will want to warn them. We must all learn to heed the right prophetic voices. Understood rightly, woes are not curses. Instead, woes are urgent warnings that things have gone from bad to worse. It is a cry, an exclamation of anguish and at times anger, a cry of pain and perhaps of frustration that repeated wake-up calls have not been heeded. It highlights a condition, an evaluation that the state of affairs is not right, is getting worse and must be promptly addressed. It foretells a calamity, an eventuality of dire consequence, of disaster, of eternal destruction, an event to be avoided at all cost. When Jesus pronounced these woes, he was not wishing bad upon the religious leaders. On the contrary, he was lovingly and graciously beseeching them and their followers to turn and to return to him. And because they wouldn't and didn't, it broke his heart as seen through his lament over Jerusalem. But this teaching is not just for leaders. Remember that it was directed to disciples. As people of the kingdom, we must decide how we want to live. Good intentions are not enough. Let's learn from the seven woes and be guided by the seven reminders. Determine always to know the heart of our King, that we may rightly divide and handle His word. There's simply no place for pride and complacency or presumption. Love the blessings. Heed the warnings. Hear what the Spirit is saying. Follow Jesus. And for those of us who are in leadership, when the Lord said, I will give you shepherds according to my heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. May we be the ones he was talking about. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your heart of love and of grace. Thank you also, Lord, for declaring truth, although it's difficult for many of us to accept it. But Father, I thank you for the Holy Spirit that brings conviction, but also guides us into all that your kingdom is about. Lord Jesus, forgive us, Lord, where we have not lived rightly, where we have made things difficult for others. Teach us, Lord, that we may recover your heart once more of justice, of mercy, of faithfulness, and especially of love, Lord, that we can then be good representatives of you and your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for warning us and bringing us back on track. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining me for another Kingdom 101 teaching. For past teachings, visit our website, kingdom101.archipusawakening.org. Until the next time, this is Hanson signing off. Stay awakened, aligned, and assigned. God bless you.